Shrink Wrap Radio number 790, Joseph Schrand, M.D., on Unleashing the Power of Respect. And now it's time for Dr. Dave and Shrink Wrap Radio. You're on the couch again with Dr. Dave. And Shrink Wrap Radio, all the psychology you need to know, and just enough to make it dangerous. It's all in your head. And now, here's your host, Dr. Dave. In his book, Unleashing the Power of Respect The I Am Approach, my guest today, Joseph Schrand, MD illustrates through his patients' stories that no one is broken. We're all doing the best we can, with the potential to change in the very next moment. Now, here is the interview. Dr. Joseph Schrand, uh, welcome to Shrinkwrap Radio. Well, thank you so much, David. I'm honored and delighted to be here. Well, I'm honored and delighted to have you here. We're going to be discussing uh, your book, Unleashing the Power of Respect, the I Am Approach. And since listeners, viewers can't see it, maybe you've got a copy of the book handy. I don't know. I, I was working off of a digital thing. But I Am is, is spelled I, the letter I, hyphen M. Maybe kind of a play on words like I am, I am. <laughs> exactly right. This is who I am. This is me. I matter. Yes. Okay. And before we get into that, uh, you know, let's get a bit into your into your early years and your background. Um, I understand you were a child TV star. Tell us about that and how in the world that came about. Yeah. Um, yes, actually. Um, I don't think any of us knew that we were stars at that time, but it's been 50 years so this was a TV show called Zoom. It was 1972 uh, out of WGBH in Boston. How, how synchronistic and, that we're speaking on an, an app called Zoom it, and you were on a show called Zoom. That's exactly right. And I think in part, uh, it's it's it stirred the memory of a lot of people um, having the app called Zoom. And I've, I've been getting a lot of calls and uh, Facebook and through my website as they remember the song, because there was a theme song that went along with it that ended with, right, Zoom Z double O-M, Box 350, Boston Mass, oh, two, one, three, four. And a lot of people still, it just goes through their mind. And it's yeah, like wow. 50 years later. So what, so what kind of a show was it? This this was, would this have been in the very early years of television? Uh, well, hopefully not that early day. Okay. It's 1972, wasn't? But, um, okay. but it was it was the first real, fully racially integrated kids show. It was just kids, um, and we we would take um, letters from other kids who would write in. Yeah, yeah. And that's where we got the material from. We did have a couple of um, choreographed dance numbers at the very end of the show. There was always a big dance number choreographed by this guy, Billy Wilson, who was a Broadway choreographer. And the music was written by this guy, Newton Wayland, who was very famous in his days, both of whom unfortunately have passed. But it was just a bunch of kids being kids. Also, I, I assume it was before Sesame Street, right? It was, it was right around the same time. So, so Sesame Street, Electric Company, and Zoom were sort of the three main PBS children's shows. Okay. And Zoom was for the slightly older group, like, you know, eight, nine, ten through, you know, early teens. Uh, and that was, that was sort of the group that we were targeting. But it was really 
different than the other shows because there were no adults. There were no adults at all. And it was really just kids, like I say, being together. And that is where I really learned about respect. Really? And how the foundation of respect leads to value and how that value leads to trust. And with that trust, you can share all these different stories. And that sort of just naturally evolved in Zoom. There was one episode where we were uh, rehearsing our very first song number. And one of the cast members, there were seven of us, one of the cast members fell off the back of the set and hit her head and had to be rushed by ambulance to a hospital. She was fine, but we didn't know that. And it, it just generated what was the first Zoom wrap where we just started talking about our own medical stuff and hospitals and getting shots and, you know, being in accidents. And the, um, the executive producer, the guy Christopher Sarson, just ran the tape. So we were just sitting around and he was filming this. And it was unscripted. Completely unscripted. Yeah. Completely unscripted as we were just talking about the experiences that we'd had. And, and, and we would not have been able to do that so openly if we hadn't trusted each other. And remember, we got cameras going. We were in a studio. You know, we're in a television studio with three or four different people on camera. But we're just we're just chatting with each other. And how did you get tapped for this? Are you the child of showbiz parents or... Uh, you know, <laughs> or you put up out for modeling uh, uh, stuff, or how did you get into this? No, I, actually, um, well, my mother was an actress and my father was a pediatrician. Okay. So those are the only two things that I sort of knew in life. Um, and we had, I was born in Cape Town, and then we came over back and forth between Cape Town and England and the United States for the first eight, nine, 10 years of my life. Uh-huh. And when I was about 10, I was here in the States, and um, my mother had been doing some theater at MIT and other places around Boston. And there was a poster that she saw looking for auditions for Oliver. Oliver. The musical. Yeah. yeah I and um, I went to the audition, and I got the part of the Artful Dodger. And You got the part of who? The Artful Dodger, right? Artful Consider Dodger, yourself yes. at home, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and, and was in a touring company uh, at the age of 10. Okay. One of my really good friends from school, because uh, it was like sixth, seventh grade, had seen me in the show. Um, and his mom was into public relations and heard about this new children's TV show that was sort of going to be like a Rowan and Martin's laugh-in which is an old show, an old comedy show. I remember that, yeah. Right? And he and I had written this terrible play about Sherlock Holmes, where the whole play revolved around Sherlock Holmes saying, please don't call me Shirley, which later <laughs> people use in another film years later. But so he and I went to the audition and we did this terrible play. And uh, there was this British fellow, this this guy turned out to be Christopher Sarson, the producer and creator of Zoom. And he said, can either of you sing? And my friend who had seen me and Oliver said, well, Joe can sing. So they separated us. And I went into one room. My friend went into another room. And I started doing improv and singing. And the next thing I know that night, I get a telephone call from this guy with his British accent asking if I would come to the callback. They had whittled it down from about 200 kids or so down to 20 kids would I come in for the callback. So I said, yeah, I'd love to. And I called up my friend and I said, so whose mom is going to drive? And he said, drive where? And I learned my first lesson about theater, never bring your friend to an audition. Uh-huh. So, um, so I went to the callback and the next thing I know, I get cast and it's there are seven of us but we're not none of us were professional actors we were just these kids i mean i had a little theater the other kids had some theater and dance and singing but but the whole idea was we weren't these glitzy hollywood professional people we were just kids 
And we had no idea, no idea that we were going to create something that would still resonate with people half a century later. And for folks, if you're listening, you can actually watch the first show because WGBH had been very, very um, protective of their material, but they've now released it. So if you go to wgbh.org backslash Zoom 50, you can see the very first show uh, and a bunch of other stuff. Yeah. And it's wonderful to watch. Yeah, that's great. That's great. So um doesn't sound like you were a shy kid. Um, no, I, I, I certainly was not particularly shy. I, <laughs> I, um, I enjoyed doing things. I enjoyed being with people. But I also, you know, was coming from a place where my parents were, were not very happy with each other. Huh. And uh, this led to Zoom being this absolutely remarkable gift. Because all of a sudden I had something to do after school. It wasn't just baseball. I love baseball, different sports. Um, and, and it was a place where there was just acceptance. So it's almost it, like another family, it sounds like. Absolutely. And we're still in touch with each other 50 years later. Oh, wow. How wonderful. How cool is that, right? Yeah, how wonderful. And your, your dad... Uh, you mentioned was a pediatrician and and should mention that you've gone on to be an md and, yes um, how influential was that on your choice to become a, an md i think it was enormously influential um my my father was an excellent pediatrician uh who taught me also about the power of respect and how the physician is the medicine if, if your patient doesn't trust you, then why should they sort of do anything, really? Why should they take a medicine that you're suggesting? But that was the era where it was all about sickness and pathology, you know? Yeah. And, and what we would do as physicians was we would fix people. We would cure them. We would treat them. And that also has had a huge influence on the IM approach. Um, sitting with my dad, you know, when I was in high school and in college, um, watching him work with these young kids um, and how he managed so much of their anxiety. And then being with my mom, watching the way theater created almost an immediate family where people would come together as a community to do something to create a production that other people could enjoy. And what's interesting is both of these things, because I'm, I'm a child psychiatrist, right? I'm board certified in adult psychiatry, child psychiatry, and addiction medicine. And years and years later, in around 2010 or 11, I created something called Drug Story Theater. Which that is was really we, bringing the two, the two worlds together. Huh? Totally, totally. Yeah. And we're still doing it where we take teenagers in the early stages of recovery. We teach them improvisational theater. Oh, and then we use something called psychodrama and they create their own scripted shows about the seduction of addiction to and recovery from drugs and alcohol. And they perform these shows for middle schools and high schools. So the treatment of one becomes a prevention of many. And in between each scene, the kids step out of character and they do PowerPoint presentations, teaching the audience about the neuroscience of adolescent brain development. Oh, how cool. And why is it risk for addiction? And all the kids in the audience take a pre-show neuroscience quiz and then the same quiz after the show. And we measure how kids who learn about their brain affects their perception about substance use, not to scare them, but based on the neuroscience, there's this chemical called dopamine, which is about pleasure. There's another chemical called oxytocin, not oxycontin. Oxytocin, which is about <laughs> trust. It's about trust. And dopamine interferes with oxytocin. So the message is you can get high, but the price you pay is trust. You just decide which pleasure is more important to you. 
And it's it's just the kids up there. It's peer to peer. You know, I may moderate the after uh, after the show discussion, but it is the power of kids communicating with other kids about their lives, their experience. And what is happening is that the audience, when the audience is listening and giving applause, what they're doing is increasing this oxytocin, this chemical of trust in the kids who are challenged with substance use. And that's why, I mean, the treatment of one becomes a prevention of many. So, and it's, it's also very IM based, right? I mean, we'll, we'll get into what, what the IM approach is, but I've been profoundly influenced by my mom, my dad, you know, going through my parents, parental divorce that happened. And then just realizing you know, everybody has a story. Yes, yes. And there's a reason. There are reasons why things are happening. And, you know, David, like right now in the world, there's so much anger. There's so much fear. Sure. And now there's, there's aggression and violence. Yeah. And yet, look how the world is responding. It's like saying, wait a second. We, we don't want to do this anymore. We want to do something different. And this is also part of the I am. So, the so where are you seeing this in the world, uh, that we don't want to do this anymore? I, I, I assume you're talking about the current Ukraine crisis that's going yes. on. Yes. So just say a bit more about that. So, you know, it... Human beings for millennia have increased their value by trying to decrease somebody else's. Because everybody wants to feel valuable. Think about every person you've ever met. They all want the same thing, which is just to feel valued by somebody else. The problem is when you try to increase your value by decreasing somebody else's, you should not be surprised that that person will respond in kind. Yeah. That they will then say, wait a second, wait, 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 you can't do that. I'm going to take something from you. And this leads to conflict and war. What, what I'm reading about the global community response is people are saying, no, you can't do that. You know, let's find another solution. Let's try to understand why Ukraine is being invaded. But that it's not good. We can't do it. Now, look, I'm not a politician. But as a psychiatrist who understands the brain based on people's stories, how they've taught me things, I really believe we all want the same thing, Yeah, which is just to feel valued. But what the I am approach is saying is that at every any moment in time, you can remind someone of their value. And whenever you remind someone of their value, you increase your own value. How cool would it be when we live in a world like that, where people recognize that we're all doing the best we can with the potential to change? That's what the I am is. The I am, the definition is your current maximum potential. At this moment in time, I'm doing the best I can but with the potential to change in the very next second to another I am. This is who I am. This is me. And I matter. But we are influenced by four domains. We're always responding to four domains. The home domain. No one's going to argue your home has had an influence on who you are. Okay, four domains. Okay. The social domain, which is the rest of the world. That's you and I chatting here. That's that's going to work. That's going to school. That's walking down the street. That's going into a coffee shop. These two domains, the home and the social, are outside. And then the two internal domains, the biological domain of your brain and body. Are you hungry? Are you tired? Are you digesting lunch? And then what I call the I see domain. How do I see myself? How do I think other people see me? My current concept of myself 
is very much influenced by the way I think other people see me. Right. And these four domains interact all the time, but I really believe we respond the best we can. You don't have to like your I am. You don't have to condone it. It's not a free ride. You're held responsible. Just because it's the best you can do doesn't mean you're not responsible for your action. And the I am doesn't even say we're going to win and be successful. And for some people, success is when you love going to work and love going home. For other people, success is... Definition. Like isn't that, that great, right? Yeah. When you, you love going to work and love going home. Yeah. But for some people, success is having food in the refrigerator. For some people, success is having a home to have a refrigerator. For some people, success is just being able to get up and get through the day. Yeah. But instead of judging ourselves and other people as less than and broken, not doing as well as they can, should be doing better, what's wrong with that person? Let's look again at why we do what we do based on the influence of the four domains. Yeah. And think about these words, look again. Look again, reverse it. Again, look. Again, to repeat something. Look like a spectator. The I am is saying, let's respect why people do what they do without judging them. When's the last time you got angry at someone treating you with respect? Right? They don't go together, do they? They don't, because anger is an emotion designed to change things. Yeah. We get angry when we want somebody to do something different, start doing something, stop doing something. It is the fight branch of fight flight. But being respected feels great. So we don't get angry. Respect is what leads to value, which is what everybody wants. What about tough love, right? Where maybe the, the parent or the therapist is setting pretty, is acting pretty tough. But I guess it's not anger. It's not the same as anger. It's, I, I think it's possible to do tough love and have respect for the person, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay, but th this is the key to it. If respect leads to value and value leads to trust, just because I disagree with your perspective doesn't mean I respect you any less. As a matter of fact, with respect and value and trust, we can have a much more fruitful open dialogue because you know that when you tell me what's really going on, I'm not going to judge you as broken and less than and a bad person. Secrets aren't secrets because of what we've done. Secrets are secrets because we worry, how will someone judge me if they know my yeah. secret? Right. So this is what I'm hoping for, is that we can have these conversations. We can, we can use the greatest, the greatest invention of humanity, which is language. I mean, let's, let's do it. So yeah, tough love, the, the restrictions, the, the limit setting, it doesn't mean that you're not being respected. Right, right. So maybe you tell us a little bit more about the evolution of this, your evolution and the influences that, have, uh, that you've drawn upon to uh, come to this place. Yeah. Um, when I was in college, I went to this liberal arts college called Sarah Lawrence um, in Bronxville, New York, and I was doing a lot of theater, not surprisingly, but also got really into animal behavior, especially mm -hmm. something called sociobiology, which was the genetics of behavior, the idea that behavior itself can have an adaptive meaning, just like blue eyes or brown eyes or being short or tall. Behavior can have what we call adaptive significance. It, it's a behavior that happens because it is helping an organism survive. Because that's what, that's what all organisms want to do. If you, really, if you really understand natural selection, believe in that whole concept, Nobody is trying to do worse than they can. They just want to survive. They just might not get it right. But they're still trying. Yeah. 
at the same time that I was studying that, I was studying Zen Buddhism, which I didn't realize had an enormous influence on just sort of a global perspective, not, not necessarily re- religious in that way, but, but just the sense, the question, you know, does the air separate us or unite us? Just questions like that. So I, I left Sarah Lawrence in my, at the end of sophomore year and went up to Harvard to study with the people who were creating sociobiology, this guy, E.O. Wilson and um, Stephen Jay Gould and all these folks who, who were building this new science. Really enjoyed being there. Went back to Sarah Lawrence to finish my undergrad, helped start a, a, a it was basically a, a neuro lab there. And then um, I had a small theater company when I got out of college, went back to New York, became a writer for CARE, International Aid and Development Organization. Uh-huh. And I was, I was a um, development analyst and it was like basically helping fundraise from national organizations across the United States for projects overseas to help these developing countries. And as part of of my work, I went down to a little part of Central America called Belize, um, where they had a program called Rural Education and Agricultural Program, where they were teaching kids how to grow crops, and at the same time, helping them and their families with nutrition, with economics, but also learning science, math, different things like that. And I realized while I was there that I was doing medicine wholesale. I was doing medicine. I was helping people in a way, but I would never meet them in person. So I thought, you know, I think I now have done the theater part, and now I want to do what my dad was doing, and went to Columbia University to do my pre-med while I was still working at CARE in New York. And in pre-med, you have to do physics. You still awake? Audience still awake? Because, you know, whenever I say physics, people immediately fall asleep. But, <laughs> but in physics, the symbol capital I stands for potential current. It's electricity. Okay. And I thought, well, what if we flip it upside down? And we call it a current potential. And what if we look at everyone at a maximum current potential? doing the best they can at this moment in time, but with the potential to change in the very next second. And I called it an IMAX, but we changed it to IM after publishing the fear reflex for Hazelland, because their group was worried that IMAX theaters would right. be concerned. Yeah, right. Which was fine. And I think actually I like IM better. Because like I said, as you picked up right away, this is who I am. So what, what were, that was 1982. Well, I'm and struck over, by, by what a creative mind you have, because I was very interested in electronics and uh, actually was initially admitted to college uh, to be an electrical engineer. Uh, and... Um, I quickly switched out because of of calculus and not having had (laughs) adequate preparation to really study or or to have the maturity to to really study at that, at that age. But Ohm's law was big in my world and, uh, and all those symbols. So I'm just struck by how, who you are and, and your human oriented passion sort of seized upon those symbols to give them a, a different, maybe deeper kind of meaning. I just wanted to comment on that. That's very impressive. Well, I, I truly appreciate that. My oxytocin levels are going up. So because you're, <laughs> you're valuing me, which yeah. is which is wonderful. And and I mean, I, I remember your, your, your comment reminded me of a conversation I had with my kids once where we said, so is math uh, discovered or invented? Um, and my kids started talking about it. And great got, question. <laughs> right. And we got to my youngest daughter, Becca, who at the time I think was maybe 13. And she said, dad, you know, I'm a musician. 
we count to four, occasionally the six. So, um, but that, that, that is the sort of family also, you know, to talk about how, how is the I am developed when, when I was growing up in this chaos, uh, with my parents, I, I was determined to not repeat that. Mm-hmm. I was determined to have a different type of family. Yeah. And in 1978, in between my sophomore and junior years, when I was waiting to hear from Harvard, did I get in to go up there? I was a counselor at a summer camp in Upper State New York, uh, Camp Skodak. Put it out there, it's still there, it's a wonderful camp. Um, and I was a group leader for like six and seven year olds. And Sarah Lawrence, uh, people know back in you know 76 and 77, Sarah Lawrence had just gone co-ed. So I was one of the first guys there. So as you can imagine, there was a lot of interesting activity going on at Sarah Lawrence. <laughs> I go up to camp and it's like, you know, there are very few people there that, that I mean, they were all nice people, but I, I, I didn't feel sort of a immediate sort of attraction, if you will. And we're there in this gymnasium doing groups as we're no kids there yet. We're all just getting oriented. And in the doorway appears this woman. And I just thought, I, I have to get to know this person. How do I get to know this person? And she sat on the other side of the room. And then the group leader says, we're going to break up into small groups. And to my astonishment, this woman walks right across the room. There's an empty chair next to me. She says, is anybody sitting there? And I said, and That woman changed my life. And that woman is the mother of all four of our kids. And we've been together since 1978. Wow. And and the reason it's important is because the I am is saying that because these four domains interconnect, the home, the social, the biological, and the IC, because they interconnect, a small change can have a big effect. You don't need to change everything. If you don't like your I am, here's the roadmap. Here are the four domains. What small change can you make to move you to another I am where you feel more successful? And David, there it was. In my social domain, here was a small change. This person walks into the room, crosses over to me, and that small change had a huge effect. So that's the first rule. Small changes can have big effects. The second truth of the I am, you control no one, you influence everyone. You get to choose the kind of influence you want to be. You control no one, you influence everyone. So let's think about what kind of influence do people really want to be? I really believe that people are good. And I think when you see war, if you really think about what's happening, the only way these people can go to war with each other is to dehumanize the other person. Think about it. One group will dehumanize another group, which gives them almost the, the ability to then hurt. But what does that really say about who we are as human beings? What it says is that inside, what we really are, is we don't want to hurt each other. We have to dehumanize in order to do that. Right. That's powerful. I'm remembering these stories uh, from, uh, I think, the First and Second World War. I think they happened in both cases where uh, around Christmas time, there were situations where the two sides stopped fighting and just kind of celebrated 
yes. with one another. I mean, it's extraordinary to think that that could even happen. You know, I'm getting goosebumps just hearing that, you know, I really am, because it's powerful. It says so much about who we are. This is why I really hope people will pick up this book, Unleashing the Power of Respect, the power of respect. When's the last time you got angry at someone treating you with respect? Yeah. But the way we do it is to recognize that, you know, we spend a lot of time judging ourselves as well. We have this inner critic. I should be doing better. What's wrong with me? And then are astonished that we have a particular response. You know, and that response can be anger or anxiety or sadness. And, you know, first, let me just say, the only mistake that you've made here, David, today, the only mistake is giving a psychiatrist a chance to talk. Because we we usually listen. We usually listen, you know. So when we do get a chance to talk, we don't stop talking. So so here's here's the basis of this. Again, it goes back now to the sociobiology, the genetics of behavior. We are these survival machines. There's the fight, flight, freeze branch. Fight, anger. You approach a predator and you think you can beat it. And you try to get it to run away. You try to elicit the flight response in that predator. Then there's flight, which is when you're faced with a predator and you know you can't beat it. So you try to freeze and become invisible. The first, the fight branch in humans is anger, an emotion designed to change things. The flight branch is anxiety. When we try to avoid things, we get worried, so we run away. But every now and then, you're faced with a predator or a danger that you know you're not strong enough to beat, but you just can't get away. So the next best strategy is to freeze and become invisible and hope the danger passes. And I think in humans, that's depression, where you just can't get away from it, so you just shut down. Now, curiously, there's a fourth F that people are looking at, which is called to fawn, F-A-W-N, fawning, where you are, you're trying the best to talk somebody else out of hurting you. And I think that has gotten a bad rap because it sounds like a weakness. But human beings have actually evolved three new Fs, family, friendship fellowship, and if you're not very good at spelling, physician, where you share the worry with each other. So this is why this value thing is so important. Because millions of years ago, we weren't the biggest animal, we weren't the fastest, we weren't the strongest. We were these isolated mammals scurrying around, hoping not to be lunch. We were the prey. And then we form these small social groups. And our survival potential increased so dramatically that human beings are everywhere. But to access the protection of that group, you have to contribute to that group, which means you have to have value. So whenever our brains perceive that we are less valuable, either by criticizing ourselves or feeling we're being criticized, it activates this primitive part of our brain, the fight, flight, freeze response, which is in our limbic system, the emotional, irrational part of our brain, the ancient part of our brain where memories live, where pleasures live, where actually addictions happen to live. And we go limbic. We get this overwhelming feeling of fear or anger or depression. But... Over the millennia, human beings have evolved a new brain. The neocortex. Neo is new. Cortex is brain, the new brain. And especially part right behind your forehead, the prefrontal cortex, which is the part responsible for thinking, for rational thought, for solving problems, executing a plan, and anticipating what will happen next. How many times 
Have you done something impulsively, limbically, and slapped your forehead as if you jumped hard, trying to jumpstart your prefrontal cortex? Like, uh, what was I thinking? Yeah. <laughs> so that's part of our biological domain. It's one of the four domains. The IC domain. So when I created this back in 1982, I didn't know about any of this stuff. I didn't know about something that was called the biopsychosocial model. It's a major, major part of medicine. Biopsychosocial. But it was a way to try to figure out why people were sick and broken. And we would then do our best to cure them. But the I am is saying, wait a second. What happens to another person when I see them as sick? It's going to activate that whole fight, fight, freeze response, which is normal. But what if no one's sick? What if no one is broken? What if we're at an I am doing the best we can with the potential to change? Yeah. It changes the paradigm. And that's what I'm really hoping will happen. We change the paradigm so that we can use our prefrontal cortex, which anticipates what will happen next. Because if we keep doing this limbic thing of trying to increase our value by decreasing somebody else's, we're going to destroy ourselves. Yeah, amen. And we see this. We see this in big ways right now, but in little ways as well. What about the situation that we're in with, with COVID and the impact that that's had? Because that's kind of messed with those four quadrants, right? We don't necessarily, those four quadrants aren't functioning the way that we're used to having them function in terms of our, our social connections with other people. Right. Well, this, remember, small changes can have big effects. It can't get much smaller than a virus. Yeah, right? <laughs> it's right? having a huge effect, right? Right, and looks what look has what has happened. Here, this virus has entered our social domain, and the world has responded. Some people absolutely recognize it's real. They don't want it in their home domain to infect their loved ones, so they accept vaccinations as a way of influencing their biological domain. Some people don't want to accept that it's real. And so they will reject the virus and masks and all the other protocols. One group then is separated from another. And that then can lead to more tension. Or we can say, okay, let me step back and look again and try to understand this. Why do you believe in the virus? Why do you not believe in the virus? Let's have the dialogue. Let's have the conversation. My, my great disappointment with COVID is that there was an opportunity to unite us. Unfortunately, as always, we have to be united around a common enemy to show that we're one group. One day, we will move away from having to have a common enemy. But we are one group. It's called humanity. We all want the same thing. So what COVID has done is affected us globally. But in the individual, what it's doing also is increasing another chemical called cortisol. Cortisol is the chemical of stress. Mm -hmm. A chemical gets released from your brain when there's danger. It's called ACTA. It's like Paul Revere. And it says, the British are coming, the British are coming. And it sends a message down to these little glands on top of our kidneys, the adrenal glands, like adrenaline. And that sends out cortisol, which is like the Minutemen, to respond to that immediacy of danger. It's perfect for acute stress, which is what the world is under. But the acute stress has become chronic stress. What happens under acute stress? We increase the blood flow to our arms and legs so we can run away or fight. In order to do that, we don't make more blood. We have to take blood away from our gut 
because there's no point digesting lunch if you're going to be lunch. When people get really stressed out and anxious, they feel sick to their stomach. That's why. We take blood from our skin. So if we run away, we won't overheat. That's why people get the cold sweats when they're under stress. We take sugar from the rest of our body so our brain can think more. It's called brain pull. That's why some people get like the shakes when they're under stress because they're getting low blood sugar. We increase our clotting factors so that we don't bleed out if we're bitten by that saber-toothed tiger. We increase our immune response so we don't get infected by whatever bacteria may be in that body. Perfectly normal under acute stress. It's about survival. The problem is it all stays on under chronic stress, which means now people are at higher risk for type 2 diabetes because of that low blood sugar thing, for high blood pressure, for heart attacks because of that clotting thing, for all sorts of immune problems. So what has COVID done? COVID has put our world at risk, not just from the virus, but at the risk of chronic stress. A system has an IM as well. The IM is not just about an individual. It can be applied at a whole system. So the United States has an IM. This is our home domain. Our social domain is our interaction with the rest of the global community. Our IC domain is the way we see ourselves as the United States and the way other global nations see us, which is different now than it was under George Washington. And then there's the biological domain, which is each person and each of them has an I am. So COVID, COVID has, for me, revealed once again how much we have in common. How much we have in common. But it was politicized and used as a way to divide instead of unite. Yeah. It was used as a way to create these groups. And we have a group, one over here, it's an in-group. Everybody part of that group is in. But to us, there's an out-group. But in that out-group, all of them are in their in-group. And the ones in the other are in the out-group. Now you have these two groups competing against each other and dehumanizing each other and devaluing each other and mistrusting each other as opposed to recognizing that we're one group and it's called humanity. Yeah. Rather than my judge that other person in that out group, I'm curious, what's your perspective? Let's share that. But that's not going to happen if you don't feel respected and valued by me. Yeah, I've sometimes thought that the best thing for us would be if we were attacked from outer space, yeah. and we, then we might unite. I agree. Absolutely. Yeah. You're right. Yeah. That's right. Right. War of the worlds. But in a way, the virus is, can also be seen as an attack from, quotes, outer space. But, but we've not perceived it globally as um, something that we all are need, needing to deal with yeah. together. And, and, and the virus has an I am as well, right? That virus isn't being, doing something malicious. It's also trying to survive. Right. And right. so what, what has it done? It's adapted. So instead of being lethal, it's now more contagious. This is the theory, because if it's too lethal, it's going to kill off all its potential hosts and it won't survive. (laughs) So everything has an I am. It's just that we don't have to like it, but we do need to understand it and respect why it's happening. Yeah. So the ideas seem very simple as you present them, and I'm wondering Has anybody accused you of being too simplistic? Um, Yes, all the time. And that's their (laughs) I am. That's their I am, which is totally fine. No, it's a big lift, unfortunately. It's a a big big lift, a big ask. 
uh-huh. to say, you know, let's respect each other because our brains aren't always designed to do that. We are really good at comparing sets of information. This is what our brains are designed to do. There's something called stranger anxiety in babies around the age of six or seven months. So a baby can't have stranger anxiety until it can compare a set of information that's familiar and unfamiliar. This is what we're up against. So yes, people said, oh, it's just too simple. You know, how can you say everyone's doing the best they can? How can you say that? Because we are. Here's an example. As a psychiatrist, I work a lot with people who may need medication. And I will teach them all the I am. And I'll remind them small changes can have big effects. When I add a medicine, all I'm doing is making a small change in the biological domain. I change the environment of those brain cells. I'm going to change the response. Nothing's broken. We're changing an environment. When you can look at ourselves that way, it takes away the barrier that we have about being less valuable. It takes away the resistance, as we call it in psychiatry, to really exploring who we are and why we do what we do. And many of my colleagues initially have said, yes, this is really, really just doesn't make any sense. And then they think about it and they go, wow, that is what we're doing when we add medicine. That is what happens when we do surgery. We're just changing the environment. Why do we think it has to be broken? We use words like disorder to describe people. Bipolar disorder, schizophrenic disorder, borderline personality disorder, attention deficit disorder. I tell people that words are important. If you use the word disorder, you're automatically creating a stigma and separating people into two groups. This group is okay. That group is not. And then we're astonished that we have stigma and mistrust. We use this word disorder so casually now because it's become part of the vernacular. But we have to recognize what it's doing to our patients. It is increasing cortisol, which interferes with healing. So we're not doing anyone a service. It's a condition. Words are so important. You know, we have this opportunity right now, right now in our world where there is so much tension. Let's look again at why it's happening. Why is there so much anger? What do people want to see different? What are they afraid of instead of judging them for it? Well, what you say makes a lot of sense to me, and I've always been uh, impressed by systems theory view of things and and i think what you're saying is kind of a a version of a systems theory way of thinking and seeing things and uh absolutely sign me up you know where (laughs) where do i (laughs) sign up for this stuff (laughs) that's great well i I hope i hope you do and I, i hope all your listeners do because we have an opportunity here we really do um we can start looking at things differently. We have a brain to do that. It's a remarkable brain. You know, everyone, everyone is in an I am. We just have to understand who they are, why they do what they do. Yeah, like you, I got into this work, I think, in part because of a profound sense of what you said early on that everybody has a story. And, you know, in my, adolescence somehow i was the kind of guy that people like to tell their story with and i thought i had a story i knew i had a story (laughs) and um and my story sensitized me to 
being aware that wait a second other people have stories too mm-hmm. and to to really value them uh, v- value that and i think i think I re- originally when i was drawn to becoming a psychotherapist um was more that vision that i wanted to realize of just sharing that kind of a conversation i think i got to some degree poisoned by by the training by phd mm. training that really reinforced the separation that you're talking about yeah yeah so i i'm sure that you've shared your story with your listeners um i have <laughs> and yeah. and and i think it it's so isn't it the most amazing job? It doesn't feel like a job. I mean, to work with people in their time of need, for me, it is the greatest honor and privilege. But every single person who has come to me on some level has felt less valuable. Or they yeah. wouldn't be coming to see me. And what I get to do is remind them of their value. Yeah. Yeah, yeah excellent. And then they can trust and share those stories. Yeah. And also, I think it all it can be applied to teaching as well, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, if if you come to teaching as the sage on the stage, as they say, hmm. um, that that creates that separation that you're talking about, and I'm the guy who who's the expert who knows it all, and I'm going to drill it into your head somehow. Yeah. Yeah. And that just, yeah. that doesn't work. It doesn't work. Yeah. In the same way that that word expert is so important because um, when I'm working in, in my capacity as a child psychiatrist, I will say to the parent, don't let anybody ever tell you that you are not the expert in your kid. You are the expert. People like me, we're just the professionals. But the most important person is that kid. Because they are the only one who can tell me what it's like to be them. Other people will tell me what they observe. I bring my experience now, having done this more than two or three times as long as the kids have been alive, which is totally freaking me out. But besides that, they're it. You know? Isn't it amazing, right? Yeah. And there's so many stories out there of parents who felt uh, demonized and went from, you know, professional to professional to professional before they finally found, hopefully, ideally in some cases, found someone who did not blame them. Right. And who who could uh, meet them at a different level. Do you remember there was that phrase, the schizophrenogenic mother? Yes. Right? That, that, that a mom would come in to try to get help for her kid and she would be vilified as the reason her kid needed help. Right. And it's just like. And the icebox oh. mother, I think is another oh, one. Oh yeah. 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 It's amazing what we did, huh? Yeah. But you know what? That was how I am. In terms that's, of dealing with, point of it. It was autistic, right? It was the icebox mother. Right. Right. Uh, Yeah, so the the path is littered with <laughs> the path from there to here is littered with all kinds of bodies along the way. But yeah, uh, I think uh, I'm really glad that you're in the world and doing what you're doing. And I want to thank you for being my guest today on Shrinkwrap Radio. David, this small change I hope has a big effect. You control no one, you influence everyone. And David, you have chosen to be pretty amazing influence. So I truly appreciate it. Thanks. Thanks for having me on the show. The word that first comes to mind as I reflect on my conversation with today's guest, Joseph Schrand, MD, is Minch. I say this without knowing anything about his ethnic roots. He just comes across as so warm, 
relaxed and non-judgmental. Non-judgmental is good because that quality is intrinsic to his 2022 book, Unleashing the Power of Respect, the I Am Approach. In fact, a number of times during our conversation, he repeated, quote, No one is broken. We are all doing the best we can with the potential to change in the very next moment, close quote, almost as a kind of mantra. Such a rare stance for a psychiatrist. Unlike most psychiatrists, as an article of faith, he never tells his patients that they suffer from a disorder, whether it be depressive disorder, anxiety disorder, bipolar disorder, or any other disorders described in the psychiatric lexicon. To confront his patient with a label would immediately create a distance between himself and them. They would feel judged, thereby undermining any chance of an I-thou encounter. Of course, he has all the training of a psychiatrist and may recognize a pattern of symptoms suggesting a treatment approach, but he's careful not to let his professional discernment show up as a judgment because he knows that person is not broken and is doing the best they can with the potential to change in the very next moment. And furthermore, he knows he can't deliberately change his patient but his presence may be a factor to trigger a change, and that even a very small change may start a process leading to big changes. Basically, his IM model is a systems approach. As he pointed out in our discussion, at the individual level, there are four quadrants. As Dr. Joe describes them in his book, and I quote, your I am is always changing, adapting, evolving, influenced by and responding to four domains, your home domain, your social domain, your biological domain of your brain and body, and your IC domain, that is how you see yourself and how you think others see you, close quote. As the title of the book suggests, it's all about unleashing the power of respect. Dr. Joe writes, quote, Respect leads to value, and value leads to trust. Trust is the antidote to fear and anger and sadness, because when you trust someone, you can make a mistake, and I know you will not be seen as less valuable. The I Am approach allows you to unleash your unlimited human potential, your wonder, your creativity. It unleashes the power of respect. Dr. Joe goes on to emphasize what he refers to as the two truths of the I Am approach. And I quote, Truth number one, small changes can have big effects. Because the four domains are so connected and interactive, a small change in one domain can have an amplified and ripple effect in the others. You don't need to change everything. If you think you have to change everything, you can become overwhelmed. If you're overwhelmed, your biological domain can feel angry, anxious, or sad, which will then affect the other domains. Relax. Small changes can have big effects. Close quote. And he goes on to add, quote, Truth number two, you control no one but influence everyone. The second truth is even more powerful. Everyone has an I am. We are all interrelated through our IC domain about what others think and feel about us. You are part of someone's home or social domain. You have an effect on their biological domain through their IC domain, because you know it feels different when someone says you are amazing or says you suck. When you are treated with respect or not, this means that you control no one but influence everyone. You get to choose the kind of influence you want to be. Close quote. 
Well, these little snippets I've quoted here give you a sense of his writing. His I am model is simple, but not necessarily simplistic. The individual I am quadrants can be expanded out to describe the dynamics of groups such as neighborhoods, cities, nations, and even more. It's an evolutionary model all about survival, each organism doing the best it can to survive. As you will have heard, we were able to apply these ideas all the way from the viruses in the pandemic to Russia's assault on the Ukraine. Dr. Schran's model is simple but powerful. You'll have to read the book for more details on how to apply it in your own life, as well as to read case histories of how Dr. Joe has applied this approach in arenas such as schizophrenia, autism, bipolar, and more. Moreover, you will discover the fascinating details of his remarkably full and singular life. Dr. Joe challenges each one of us to be a power for good in the world by respecting all whom we come into contact with. Once again, the book is Unleashing the Power of Respect, The I Am Approach by Joseph A. Schrand, M.D. Hi, Dr. Dave. This is just to let you know that I really appreciate your show across the ocean here in the Netherlands. I've expressed that by a small donation. With regard to the work you put into your shows, it's just a small amount, but it's another way to say I value what you do. I'll keep listening with heart and mind. Thank you, Joris, there in the Netherlands, listening and contributing with heart and mind. What more could I ask for? And of course, thank you to all you other monthly supporters. Your regular donations mean so much to me. Once again, it's time to shrink wrap it up. Thanks to my guest today, Dr. Joseph A. Schrand, for his warm presence and for telling us about his work and his latest book, Unleashing the Power of Respect, The I Am Approach. Much respect to him. Next week, I'll be speaking with return guest, family therapist, Neil D. Brown, LCSW, on family mental health during the time of COVID. So until then, this is Dr. Dave reminding you to be kind to yourselves and others. You've been shrink-wrapped by Dr. Dave. All the psychology you need to know, and just enough to make you dangerous.